Hello and welcome to another episode of Connecting the Dots. I'm Jake Lancaster, an internal medicine physician and the chief medical information officer for the Baptist system. Hey everybody, I'm HF Mason. I'm a general surgeon and chief medical officer at Baptist Memorial Hospital DeSoto and chief quality officer for the Baptist system. And today we are very honored to have Dr. Adrian Boise from the Cleveland Clinic, um, a practicing neurologist and the chief medical officer for Qualtrics. Adrian, welcome to the program. Thanks so much for having me. So for our audience, can you just tell us a little bit about your background and, um, and what you do? Uh, well, my my joy pie, my purpose in life is to reduce suffering and create joy in healthcare. That's simply said. Uh, I I uh, grew up sort of fascinated with human behavior. I feel like that has been something I've been trying to solve for most of my career and personal life. Uh, why do people behave the way they do? How how can we shape choices? What helps uh, them uh, color their experiences, form memories? And uh, thought the best way to get at that was by being a neurologist. And so went down the path of studying the brain, did neurobiological research at Brigham and Women's and then later at Boston University. Uh, and then meandered into, I gave up my dreams of being a ballerina. I meandered over into medical school. I uh, still found myself waiting outside rooms and feeling like we had said a bunch of stuff, but I didn't know if patients understood it. Uh, so I wound up pursuing a master's in bioethics. And then right about the time when I came on as staff, they were, the Cleveland Clinic was starting its Patients First Movement under the leadership of Toby Cosgrove. And I just kind of glommed onto that train and kept running. Uh, and a couple of years later became uh, chief experience officer, left that role in fall of last year and have stepped into this role to really drive empathy at scale in organizations around the globe. Well, Adrian, thank you very much for being here. Uh, you are actually the third person associated with Cleveland Clinic that we've we've had on the podcast. One of our first guests ever was was Dr. Sheridan. Uh, that was maybe close to two years ago. We actually had fairly recently we had Dr. Uh, Jareko, oh, who sure. was their, their chief quality officer, and we had we had great conversations. And Cleveland Clinic is a is a great place, and uh, we really like having you guys on. Um, and also, I, you know, today our, our topic is going to be talking about empathy in healthcare and the importance. And, um, you know, I watched your TED talk when you were at Cleveland State and you talked about your dad and, and, and that was that was really a touching story. But but as we get into empathy, you know, myself, sometimes we get sympathy and empathy confused and a lot of times we equate equate those two but but for our audience why don't you tell us just to start off and lay the foundation the difference between the two sure well empathy is about usually feeling sorry for the experience of another you know i i feel bad that you're having that experience i feel sorry for you and empathy for me circulates more around the concept of i i'm i'm still in my own self and I am relating to your experience, but I'm not necessarily feeling the exact same thing. I'm working to understand it. I'm working to imagine it, but it's beyond sorrow. It could be a full range of emotions. Uh, when I think about empathy, 
The other term we also uh, confuse or muddle uh, in my mind is certainly compassion. Uh, so I would just frame up when I think about empathy, I'm thinking about four components. And this uh, was suggested a long time ago. Uh, the first component is that there's an affective component. We want to feel into the experience of another, the emotions that someone else is feeling. A cognitive component, we want to imagine the experience. Not everybody feels into it, but we want to be able to imagine, even if we're not going to sit in that same bathtub of emotion. Uh, the third component speaks to the idea it's a moral component, right? We're wired to want to connect emotionally with other human beings. We may not feel that all the time, but there is this neurologic basis for that. We feel the pain of others. We want to be connected in relationships. And the last component is about behavior. You can't do all that hard work of feeling or imagining and then not want to act upon it. You have to demonstrate an action, and that could be a hug, that could be a verbalization back, that could be going and doing something. But I think organizations and people who are serious about empathy really think about those components. I have to listen, I have to understand, and then I have to do. And that's part of why I'm at Qualtrics, because we use technology to some extent to do that. Uh, to really amplify the human experiences of people. And in my practice, the same, and I'm sure you do too. But maybe that helps uh, clarify some of the definitions on the landscape as I think about them. Sure. No, yeah, that was very good definition. You know, certainly a lot um, to unpack there. But I want to talk about why why is empathy important in healthcare? We all and when we were writing our personal statements to get into medical school, we said we wanted to help people. So every doctor out there is the most is some of the most empathetic people on the planet. Um, we don't need to work on our, our empathy, do we? Well, now you're just trying to be provocative. I mean, come on. <laughs> uh, well, let's let's differentiate empathy as a concept from altruism. Right. Just because I want to help other people or I want to perfect my surgical skills and save lives doesn't inherently to me mean that you're empathic nor that you have the skills around empathy. And in fact, we see that all the time uh, as, you know, we build training programs to train clinicians all around the globe and they'll say, no, 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 I, I get empathy. I'm a, I'm a highly effective communicator. And then you say, great, um, tell me what empathy sounds like. And they'll say, well, well, I fixed I fixed their problem. You know, I offer fix, I'm gonna get to the, I'm gonna fix it right away. Uh, I, I tell people I'm listening. And that 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 is not the most uh, efficient nor effective way to express empathy. And so it really is a skill set that can be learned um, and as we think about the ROI of that, there's a lot of layers there we can unpack, but I'll, I'll toss it back to you and see where you want to take it. You know, it's, uh, you know, I'm a fixer and, and that's, that's the kind of mode. How's that working out for you? Yeah. And well, that's sometimes, <laughs> most of the time, not so good. And, and it, you know, when I don't know if you've read uh, Dare to Lead by Brene Brown. And of course, she she tells a story about when she gets stuck and she she's unable to get to her daughter's field hockey game. It's like her last game of her senior year. And, you know, finally, once they come to the realization that 
we're not going to make it that that her she talks about how her friend was so empathetic empathetic in that situation that she didn't you know she wasn't trying to fix it it couldn't be fixed she didn't say hey it excuse me it sucks to be you but she just tried to be with her in that moment and 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 to kind of feel for her you know that and and that was a great story but i'm gonna put you on the spot here you know in your experience you know on a scale of one to ten how do we do as a as a medical community and medical providers in in providing empathy toward toward our patients Well, I'll lead my answer by saying that every single clinician I've ever met wants to be showing up in a way that makes their patients feel valued and seen. I have never, and it's a beautiful thing, right? I have never met somebody who can't resonate with that concept. And that's a beautiful foundation to build from. The data, however, would highlight to us that about 90% of the time, Right. We miss emotional cues from patients uh, and that's done after recording sessions and visits uh, that only I think it's just over 56 or so percent of physicians think compassion is important in their practice. Uh, uh, That's not a super high number and I'll double check that, but uh, we listen for about. 18 seconds uh, before we start interrupting. And even when recorded and told that we'll be watched, we extend that only by about five seconds. So that's some compelling data that would say, what, what a conundrum. We have these people who bring their whole hearts to their care and deeply resonate with wanting to be connected. And yet we have data that suggests that actually isn't how people are feeling. And to me, that's a beautiful opportunity, right? That dissonance between uh, should be telling us that maybe we're not as good as we think we are. So to me, empathy really helps build the patient uh, physician relationship and and helps build that trust. Maybe you can talk a, a little bit about the data, um, about why it's important and, and what it's able to do for that patient-physician relationship. Because, you know, to me, I would imagine if, if you're a more empathetic uh, physician um, trying to convince a patient to do X, Y, or Z or, you know, or get the patient to you know, feel comfortable with you, take them to surgery, um, that you might have better outcomes, you might have better medication adherence or or something along those lines. Is is there any data to suggest um, empathy, being more empathetic, helps in any of those domains? (laughs) Well, I think I think there's books written about how empathy (laughs) can be helpful in those domains. Uh, So, well, let's maybe a good way to think about this is not to sort of rehash that there's 30 years of data that suggests not only can empathy be taught, but it it has benefits on all sides. I, I wanna maybe nudge us to think about the concept that empathy just isn't this cute thing that happens between two people. <laughs> 
empathy at scale, when we bake empathy into our processes, our systems, our quality programs, we can achieve something even greater. I don't want us to limit ourselves. And I think most people still think of it as this pink unicorn with glitter over in the corner that's a nice to have add on if we have time. And I really would push us to challenge systems to say, no, 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 you say empathy and compassion is one of your values. Great. So what behaviors do you expect from every single caregiver every single day? How have you invested in training your caregivers on those behaviors? And who evaluates? Does the patient ask them about the, get asked about the values you say you live as an organization so they can be a third party observer into whether or not we live out empathy and compassion and integrity and safety and quality and teamwork? Uh, and do our employees get asked the same thing? Because that moves it out of the soft, fluffy realm into how are you really living it in your system? And I think only when we're living and breathing it will it permeate and sustain. And so I'm much more interested in that concept. I mean, we spent a lot of time thinking about how can Adrian be a better doctor and how can he set a better agenda or be a reflective listener. Uh, and I think that's all great and important. And I think there's much greater opportunity actually in thinking about how we bake it into our systems. I'll give you an example. I'll give you a couple examples. Um, many organizations do uh, a safety checklist, universal protocol. It's critically important and highly reliable systems that we're gonna institute universal checklists. And I've seen those checklists, right? We're trying to learn from the airline industry. I get it. It's great and very important to prevent medical errors. And uh, human brains don't engage in checklists, right? First of all, the human brain only remembers so many things. And when it's presented the same way every time, you're going to quickly adapt and disengage. It's just natural in your neural mechanisms. And the challenge is, how can we hit the brain from the left side to sort of capture your attention and get you to focus in on this patient in front of you? And one of the answers is to humanize it. And so thinking about could that first checkbox on that checklist, which is something we implemented in a former life, be a moment to slow down and recognize I'm not just operating on anybody. I'm operating on Jake today. I've known Jake for five years. I want the team around this table to understand that he's been a caregiver at Baptist for 20 years and he has a daughter with special needs. This is who's trusting us with their care today. Now we're going to go into the checklist, right? Because you create actually a moment of caring in the conversation that wasn't there before. RCAs are another great example. Can we in root cause analyses when all of our people around the table facing shame and anger and blame and pointing, you know, a variety of emotions that they may be feeling? Can we honor those emotions in a systemic way in an RCA differently? And whether it's just, has anybody ever failed at everything, raise your hand and all hands go up in the room. You know, can anyone describe to me how that feels? And then you popcorn out the emotion on the table. Those are ways we humanize our processes to really bake empathy in. So 
I, I think when organizations do that, you can see ROI at the call center in terms of efficiency, cutting down costs, better relationships. You can see patients showing up for their appointments, so you're decreasing no-show rates, sometimes up to 10, 20% when there's more relational tie. Patient activation data is really clear. When we activate patients, when they're motivated and confident, they can do things because they've got a strong relationship with Dr. Joe. Uh, they annualize costs are significantly different across their levels of activation, more likely to take their medication, more likely to stay out of the ER, all which translates to financial ROI, which seems to speak to a lot of healthcare systems. And, you know, you're talking about those outcomes, and but, you know, those outcomes are independently related to the patient experience. I mean, you know, we talk about, hey, the patient has a, a great experience, so they're more likely to take their medicine, but or they're more likely to show up for their follow-up appointments. But I think, I mean, you know, there's something that, that I hate to say that it's immeasurable, but there there's just something about that experience in and of itself that contributes to that. Am I am I speaking correctly? Yeah, I, d I don't think you can. I think there is a component to we're trying to measure something that can't be measured, right? The, <laughs> I don't I don't I don't know about how either of you feel, but I'm I'm a healer. I I'm not I'm not a prescription writer. <laughs> you know sure. I. I but, I want I want my patients to give me everything they got in terms of who they are, who they love, what's going on, what's important to them, what their goals are, um, because I'm in it with the long haul with my patients. I want to walk with them on this crazy, heartbreaking, wackadoodle journey called health and healthcare with them, and I'm on that road with them for a long time. And so, in order to do that, relationship has to be there. Um, and if we're talking about it starts to, to to bite at trust, right, in order for patients to trust that I'm making a recommendation for them that's valid, in order for them to trust that I have their best interests in mind, I have to build that over time. And I believe part of how we do that is to invest in that relationship together. So to your point, it's not um, this is about relationships and meaning. Right. And if we really you may say as a surgeon, well, I don't I don't really have relationships with my patients. You know, I do their operation. I've heard that before. Sure. And I think that's all that's all garbage. Uh, I've seen exceptional, extraordinary surgeons build some of the most powerful relationships with their patients, whether it's a one time surgery or eight eight time redo, redo, redo. Mm -hmm. uh, there, there's a connection there, but they do want to know how to build relationship effectively and efficiently. So I hear them saying to me much more often, just tell me the language to use. You know, what, what phrase works best? Because that's what I'm going to use. I don't need all this other stuff. So a little bit maybe more direct. Uh, and that's OK. That's your style of learning uh, for many, but not, maybe not a generalization that's fair. So I, I see all sorts of variations on it. And empathy sounds different for everybody, right? Your your most empathic statement will sound different than mine. And that's good. Uh, and that's what makes people believe in it is that it's authentic and valid for you. So I loved your examples about how y'all have added empathy or tried to bake it into the system. 
Um, I would say most places probably don't have it baked into the system. What can you tell us about what what does the lack of empathy look like at the system level um, at a hospital? You know, from the patient experience side, I, I know you're the previously the chief ex, uh, patient experience officer for Cleveland Clinic. Um, what does that look like to the patient um, when they go to a system that is maybe doesn't have that empathy baked in? What sort of things do you, do they see and experience? Uh, well, I don't think it's things that patients just experience, right? I think empathy is just as important for our own people. Uh, mm. So uh, I would encourage you, if you're not sure, to pick up the phone and call your healthcare system today. Uh, and I guarantee you, uh, pretty quickly, you're going to start to see some creaks and cracks uh, in that system that feel painful. Uh, the first one may be no one answers the phone. You're ringing and ringing and ringing. The next one may be Somebody, and we're talking about the phone, I get it, because you're not on your, you got frustrated with your app because it ended telling you you had to call in, you couldn't schedule an appointment online. So now you're calling, you're on the phone. And uh, so they do pick up, uh, and now they're asking you for all the information you've already given them, despite you being a 25-year surgeon uh, at your hospital uh, and caring for your whole family in that organization. We're going to spend five minutes reaffirming that your address is the same and your insurance is the same and your phone number is the same, even though you were there yesterday. Uh, and then mm. we're gonna, and then we're going to tell you that the next most available appointment for you is, um, and by we, I'm saying any organization. Uh, we're going to tell you that the next available appointment for your routine checkup is in nine months from now, when you asked for it within the next month. And then you're going to start laughing because that doesn't feel very empathic, uh, that you have a need, you have a preference for when you'd like to be seen, and uh, that's going to happen in nine months because of availability. And then they're going to put you on hold or transfer you uh, an average of three times, and you ultimately are going to hang up because nobody gets back to you. So that's that's not uh, uncommon. I mean, if we're being honest with ourselves, that's not an uncommon access experience. So that would be one. Yeah. Do you want well, to get? No, and no, I just you Bill? know we had somebody on earlier that um, you know had a diagnosis or or had di previous diagnosis of breast cancer, and her experience was that you know she got the mammogram, had the you know the you know the bad diagnosis in the mammogram, and then was trying to get scheduled to see an oncologist, and it was you know the n nearest appointment was. Two weeks away and the health system thought that was that was great they were going to be able to get them in in, in two weeks but to the patient that was, it's forever with a new diagnosis of cancer yeah well i mean there's there's some nice uh research and work that's in the media about efforts of the cancer center for example at the cleveland clinic um, when brian bowell was the chair who said essentially the metric shouldn't be, are you satisfied with your appointment or did you get the appointment when you wanted it for cancer? It has to be, what was the time between when you found out and you began treatment? What's the time to treat should be the measure because nobody cares about the first appointment because even if it's in two weeks, that's not when treatment starts, which means now we're a month out from the time you got diagnosed with increased mortality associated with your diagnosis the longer you wait to get treatment and we still don't have you in treatment so i agree with you wholeheartedly that if we were truly empathic 
and understood what a new diagnosis, a new lump in the breast, new blood in the stool meant to somebody who has a family history of cancer already, we would be tripping over ourselves to get that person in and treated within a day. And to me, that's empathy operationalized, right? That is adjusting the way it's always been done because you understand the emotional experience of that person on the other side. Let's take it back into the exam room, um, you know, and, and skip skip in on on the uh, podcast today. He's on PTO. But, you know. Empathy is a skill, you know, a lot of people don't don't think that they think either you got it or you don't. But it is a skill and, and, and skills can be practiced and skills can be improved. And, and one, you know, we talk a lot about continuous improvement on, on this podcast. What what are some practices that an individual provider can can do in that exam room when they're face to face with their patient to um, to, you know, um, improve their their empathy skills and to intentionally practice those skills uh, in that exam room? Sure. Um, we wrote a we wrote a book on this experience of training clinicians. Uh, just so you know, so there's a nice list of what you should stop doing and what you should consider start doing. So I'll try to maybe pull from that. The the first, so something I do just as a cheat sheet is whatever EHR you're using or in your notes, it doesn't really matter. Um, some have a function for a bit of a sticky note where you can scribble. This is Joni. She got a new puppy today. Dog's name is Carter. So when I'm walking into that room the next time, I don't say, oh, I see your hemoglobin A1C came down. I'm saying, hey, how's Carter? Last time he was what, like a month old and now, right? So I'm leading with humanity. And that way, that isn't just a nice thing to do. I'm doing that because if you're coming in to talk about surgery, I want to bring your anxiety down in the room. I want to let you know I see you as a human first not a tumor in your pelvis. Okay. I'll so, stop you just for Christy Gay is one of our, she's our chief uh, ex- patient experience officer. I know she listens to this podcast. She's going to love that because that's one thing that she's trying to train us to do is to find some personal connection with that patient on every encounter. Anyway, I interrupted you. you I'll let you amazed, right? In our normal workflow, you could make it through a whole visit without saying a darn thing about the person. Right. I can fill out all the review of systems. I can complete my whole exam. I don't have to say a single thing about your normal life. But what fun is that? That's not fun for me. And it doesn't mean as much to you. So why not? We should be loving this work and we should be loving a little bit on our patients and their families. So um, that's one tip. The next one I might offer is uh, do not start typing. Uh, when you sit down, right? You're going to sit down at eye level or below the patient, and you're going to have 30 seconds of normal human time. Sounds crazy. I know it's going to feel excruciating. Just sit there. <laughs> just just stay in the chair. Don't touch the keyboard. <laughs> and then you're going to, you know, so you'll connect on that human note, and then you're going to turn and say, I'm going to open up the computer. Why don't you take a look at it as I'm typing so you can make sure you can see what I'm typing. I want to be fully transparent with you. You're my partner. Okay, so now you're building relationship, not just being empathic. 
Uh, and then any opportunity, you know, we miss emotional cues. So that's the that's the that essentially says, right, when your spouse, partner, loved one comes home from work, let's take it out of healthcare for a second. And they say they walk in the door and they say, gosh, I had an awful day. And you say, would you mind taking the trash out? That you, <laughs> you just missed the opportunity to say, oh, I'm so sorry. You want to tell me more about it? Uh, as opposed to moving on to the next topic. And essentially, we do do the same to patients. Patients say, I'm really worried about my tumor, doc. And we say, uh, we'll get to that in just a minute. I want to talk about your recent blood counts. Uh, that, that was all you know, very great tips. Can you share the name of your book that you wrote? Yeah, that's what I was going to ask. <laughs> it's called Communication the Cleveland Clinic Way, edited with my uh, brilliant colleague, uh, Tim Gilligan, uh, How to Build an Extraordinary uh, Relationship-Centered Experience, Patient-Centered Experiences. Um, but this was really about, as we were trying to build communication skills programs within our organization at the time, the myths we heard, the challenges you got, the 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 verbatims we heard, and some of them are quite consistent. Uh, clinicians don't like to say they don't know, and they should just say, I don't know. Yeah. And uh, we should listen if you rearrange the letters equals silence. Not silence, but silent, right? We need to be quiet sometimes, and we're very good at filling up space with our with our monologues of what surgery is going to be like in the risk benefits and assessment uh, without pausing to take a breath. Um, and uh, other things, uh, winging it when it comes to challenging conversations. I know you think you need a third surgery and I don't think that's in your best interest. I wish it were different. So use of the word and, you heard me use and, even though I'm giving very difficult news, I'm not saying but. And I also said, uh, I wish, which is a very powerful statement uh, with patients. Deep empathy, just as a final nugget, sounds like uh, we, we teach empathic phrases in that model that we had built called the ready model um, in a mnemonic called save. And those are, the S is support, the A is acknowledge the emotion, V is validating that, of course, you might feel that way. And E is emotion naming, right? This is what empathy sounds like. So deeply empathic phrases pair those types of insights to an understanding of why that exists. Let me give you an example. You could say, oh, you seem sad today. That's good. That name the emotion. That's a type of empathic statement. You could amp it up if you're already a talented communicator to the next level of deep empathic statements, which is, you seem sad today. And as someone who's known you for a while, I have to imagine that this is related to the passing of your husband last year and now your daughter moving out of the house. So it's the emotion, that empathy paired with the why. And your ability to reflect those two in combination will knock people's socks off in a beautiful way. Yeah, I know we're 
running low on time, but you know, all this this discussion really seems like we're moving the relationship from a more transactional relationship to a you know a higher level relationship, a what you know level one or level two um, type relationship. I, I I don't know the levels. Come on, Jake. Skip's uh, going to be upset if you. Don't I know, know he's going to be Dr. upset. Dr. Shine's definition of uh, the relationships. <laughs> but um, one one last question, uh, Adrian, is you know. How did you guys measure this? I mean, did, did, did you when you were coaching providers, did y'all just go in the room with them and, and, and you know, S-A-V-E, oh, yeah, here's the S, here's the A, here's the B? Um, well, the whole. Let's talk about measurement in a second. Uh, when you're there's an idea that, which I learned about as we were embarking upon this work. Uh, which talks about some of you may have heard me talk about it, which is most of us are walking around as we think about our communication skills in unconscious incompetence. Got unconscious incompetence. I don't even know that I'm not good at this, but I think I'm good. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And it's only when you get a 360 or you get patient feedback or a coach about your operating skills or something, right, who who says, hey, you, you might want to think about pivoting your elbow this way or some others are noticing you're a little rough in the that you start to move into conscious incompetence. Oh, wait a second. I'm not as good as I thought I was. Huh. Only then will you show up for a class about communication skills or will you be interested in materials to learn, right? Only when you recognize you have a blind spot. So you need 360 feedback, you need patient feedback, patient comments, a Jahari window of something to move you into that phase. Many times we try training early and it doesn't work because you already think you're great. Why would you learn a new skill if you're good at it, if you're awesome at it? So you have to go through that work strategically then when we've got people in a place where they can learn, you have to roll out the best rock star training. And that could be observation in clinics. That could be a checklist you're running people through. That could be formal training. In our case, we did formal training in that prior life uh, uh, that that we built over time, looking at all the best practices around the globe, because most people never want communication skills training. So you and if they have had it before and it was bad, then they've got antibodies. So you're going to have to be really spectacular. <laughs> and then you can move into conscious incompetence. Right now I'm practicing the skill and I'm trying to get better at it. And then it becomes more woven into your fabric. You're in conscious competence. Right. And then it starts over with a new skill. So my point only in there is you can do individual. We assessed it with self-efficacy rated by the clinician, how they thought they were doing we looked at patient satisfaction scores, blinded to who got training and didn't, and we published these results for 1,500 controlled physicians. And then we looked at burnout, validated scales of empathy and burnout. Because the, the secret sauce of this whole thing is that it isn't about your communication skills. It isn't about reflective listening. It isn't about just adding one more thing. It's that when we build relationships, with our patients, with each other, with our communities, with the organization, something magical happens, right? We have reciprocal influence. There's therapeutic potential to that relationship, and that can't be measured. Can't be measured. So Amen. I can all the 
all the validated scales of empathy and we get plenty of burnout scales and we got NPSs and all of that. But this this relationship, this love we have for our patients, I I don't think it can be measured. We sure try, though. Sure. Well, Dr. Boise, uh, we're we're basically out of time, but uh, this has been a great conversation. And I know that that our listeners are going to really enjoy this episode. Uh, I think uh, they're going to come away with a lot of things that they can do in their own practice and not only in your in our practices, but in our just everyday lives to to help us become a uh, a more uh, empathetic person. And once again, on behalf of Baptist, uh, we just thank you very much. Oh, well, I love that you said that, right? They're, they aren't these weird skills we use for patients. <laughs> these are skills that help in every part of our life. And if you look at the burnout literature, it's when we find greater meaning that we're going to have some antidotes to burnout. And relationships are key and essential to that meaning. So thank you so much for taking the time to have the conversation with me and to give it voice and space. I really appreciate that from both of you. You're welcome. Thank you.